Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone, and we're going to start this podcast again with an announcement. Late Night with Strong Towns is coming up on Thursday, April 8th. This is an exclusive invite for you and fellow Strong Towns members. That, that's kind of presumptuous. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not a Strong Towns member, it is for you to go and become a Strong Towns member, and then you will be part of that. We're doing this online through Zoom. Let me read the announcement here. Join fellow Strong Towns members and staff for an evening of fun, humor, and competition. And I, I am here to attest that it will be bloody competition too. Like it, if someone's not crying by the end, it really won't be fun. I think that's how most Marone board games are. We, I, I don't know about you, Abby, but if someone's not angry, mad, resentful, flipping over the board, then it really wasn't competitive. Uh, so there will be some competition towards the end here. Uh, in this one-hour late-night show, you'll get to experience a Strong Downs trivia contest to test your knowledge of Strong Towns history, a behind-the-scenes look and live UpZone podcast featuring a couple people you might know, Abby and myself, and then a Strong Downs Shark Tank with the chance to pitch your idea for Strong Towns to, and here's that word again, to execute we will execute. It's like order number 66 or something. There'll be lots of prizes and plenty of jokes. I can't promise any funny jokes, but there will be plenty, <laughs> I'm sure. Grab your favorite beer or mug of tea. And if that's not branding ourselves as elitist, I don't know what it is. Chocolate milk. Yeah. I think it was, was the one that I asked for. That's what we said last time. I think now it is changed. I think they said, grab your favorite... Uh, locally brewed beer or organic tea, I think is how the team here, you know, branded that. So we we want to appear very urban and elitist in this. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and spend the evening with Strong Towns. Hey, if they're going to make me read stuff like this, I'm going to have a good time doing it. Uh, ticket info. Strong Towns members will receive an invitation in their emails very soon. If you didn't get yours, or if you've blocked us on email for some reason, contact Alexa at strongtowns.org and she will get it to you. And for those of you with Amazon Echoes at home, I'm just going to say my wonderful coworker's name over and over again, Alexa, Alexa, Alexa. And I'll even say this, Alexa, what's the temperature? Because then you're like fully Minnesotan. All right. <laughs> thanks, Abby. Thanks, Chuck. I'm Abby Kitty, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of UpZone, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, urban planner in Kansas City, Missouri, and I am joined once again by our regular co-host, Mr. Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Once again, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Abby. It's so nice to chat with you. Yeah, great to chat with you as well. Great introduction, by the way. <laughs> well, if you can't have fun, what are you doing? That's a yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really excited about today's article because we're going to be talking about vehicles, not just vehicles, but electric vehicles. The 
article was written by Jordan McGillis and published in the American Conservatives New Urbanism column, and it is called The Electric Slide, Car Culture Captures Climate Policy. I feel like that was a lot of C's there. Yeah, well, in, that's alliteration, is that what it's called? Yeah, I'm being tested mm-hmm. this week. <laughs> so in this article, the author asserts that despite recent American politics becoming imbued with the spirit of reset, both climate and transportation policy are seeing a reassertion of 20th century paradigms, particularly with the latest push to expand federal tax credits for electric vehicles or EVs. So although touted as the next generation of transportation, the article brings up the irony that exposes the baby boomer generation's inability to think beyond the realm of the personal vehicle when it comes to transportation and climate policy, calling electric vehicles the climate idol of the unimaginative. I think that's my favorite line in the whole article. I have it. Like, I'm going to show you. We can see each other. I actually have it highlighted. I printed this out so I could highlight that line. I'm like, that is gen- That is, is absolutely what it is. I love that. As a young person, I, I was cheering on when I heard that, or when I read it, rather. Let's say it again. The electric vehicle is the climate idol of the unimaginative. I, yeah. I, yes, it is. So advocates of electric vehicle adoption will claim a valuable future reduction of stress on the climate system. The author brings up that there's some skepticism around the reductions that they're claiming that these machines will produce and the environmental return on investment promised, especially considering that the U.S. will be getting power that's supported by uh, natural gas and coal, uh, most likely. And so it's out of sight of, of consumers. The other claim that the author disputes is that EVs would reduce local air pollution, citing a study from the University of Edinburgh uh, that found that EVs emit a greater amount of non-exhaust particulate matter due to their increased weight. So the final critique that the author makes, which is the one that I'm most interested in and probably most knowledgeable about, is that our focus on EVs as a solution to climate and transportation issues ignores the deeper questions we face with continuing to build sprawling communities that create dependency on vehicles in the first place. Despite having a very eco-friendly image, EVs require more land use than conventional vehicles and are best suited for suburban settings. So rather than an end of the era, the political and vehicular industries growing support for electric vehicles signals the beginning of what the author calls a new stanza in the epic of the car. Another good line. I can't really intelligently speak to the first critiques, and maybe you can, Chuck, and I wanted to bring them up for that reason. So, Because I don't really know whether or not electric vehicles will deliver on the promises of true reductions in energy and pollution. But I actually think the third point is the most interesting one and the most important one because it has to do with how we choose to arrange our civilization, which has much more arguably longer lasting impacts. Electric vehicles are kind of, to me, sort of the perfect product for selling this image that we're doing something about climate change while not act, not actually having to change anything significant about our lifestyle. So that's my cynical take. Um, on the other hand, perhaps it's part of kind of a larger collection of things that we can do to 
reformulate where where we stand in the larger ecosystem of the world. But I, I do feel a little bit cynical about electric vehicles and maybe because they're not really marketed to me. I don't know. What do you think? Are they going to save the world? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I want to point out something before we get too far here. And that is that this article, and you said this, and I just want to like double say it. This article comes from the publication, The American Conservative. I think it's interesting because the very first sentence of this says, you know, American politics have been imbued of late with a spirit of reset. Political alliances are dissolving and new policy frontiers are being breached. And I, I think that anybody who is kind of stuck in what I, I think is like the zeitgeist of current political conversation and, and is very wedded to like a left-right clean split of all political issues I, I think, you know, maybe should stop and reset your thinking because th this is the kind of thing that I see a lot of times coming out of conservative places and conservative. It, it's not the dominant narrative, but it's also not the dominant narrative on the left and more progressive things either. Part of this, to me, questioning just the mindless momentum that, and I'll even go so far as to say like this kind of corporate top-down combined with government top-down consensus of, okay, what the rubes need, what the regular people need is, you know, they need their automobiles and they need their streets and they need their big box stores. And we can deliver that and we can just put like a kind of uh, veneer of green and justice. And, you know, like we talked a little bit last week about like the marketing brochure. To me, this feels like a remarketing and rebranding of the suburban experiment to kind of soften the edges of some of the negative impacts that people have, have brought up and discussed. And in that case, I think it's probably effective marketing because I think people want to believe it. There's a certain group of people that want to believe it. You said you weren't too sure about the first two points. And I will tell you that I am not an expert either. You know, is this going to uh, actually result in a net reduction of emissions. I think the answer to that has to be like, I don't know. It's dependent on, are we going to trade gasoline for coal powered plants? Are we going to trade gasoline for, you know, natural gas powered plants? How, how are we going to get the electricity that's going to replace 20 million barrels of oil a day burned up in automobiles? Like where, where is that going to come from? And so if that's going to come from things that are dirty and things that emit a lot of carbon and things that emit a lot of, you know, sulfur and nitrogen into the atmosphere, then the answer is no. This is just like rearranging, you know, the deck chairs on the Titanic. If this actually is going to come from something else, I think that that question is very open and very much debated and being debated by people who are, I think, incredibly knowledgeable and don't have a consensus on it. But does this feel like from, you know, your third observation that we're just ignoring kind of, I think, the, the deeper underlying issue of how we rearrange our places? Yeah. I think you and I as Gen Xers and, you know, millennial types can look and, and, and kind of bash the boomers and say, you know, okay, what, what was the stat in here? Like 50 some percent of all EV subsidies are going to people who were alive in the Lyndon Johnson administration. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I, I, like, like that, that seems to me to be 
a, at best, like a pragmatic concession to people who have a certain vision of prosperity, but it doesn't seem to be an idea that's setting us up for future success. When I think about this topic, I think the first thing that came to my mind was thinking about this kind of from a marketing perspective. I mean, the car industry has always been an industry that has done a great job at taking something that is a machine and has a utility value and making it an extension of our personality. <laughs> you know, it, it, people buy cars and in part, and this may be an unconscious choice, but a lot of the times that we choose the car that we want because it's some kind of expression of how we think of ourselves. And that's kind I'm of- nodding along. I think that's so true. <laughs> I've mean, read somewhere how big cars are like impulse buys and they're impulse buys in, in the sense that people are, uh, they go to buy a car and then they wind up falling in love with an image of themselves projected through the vehicle. And that is actually their decision-making process, which, yeah, I'm sure, right? Yeah, totally. It's funny because when I impulse have bought my car, it was more like, I already have my own financing. Don't talk to me. Here's the cheapest one. No, I don't care what it is. Let me buy it. I don't want to learn about any of your programs. Um, so that was my version of impulse buying a car, which I... I feel like I just have a weird perspective of of my car and my my old Honda Civic is reflective of that. You see, it's an ex, it's an extension of who I am, and I feel like EVs are kind of like that. Like it's it's a statement about who you are as as a person, and it's an opportunity to express yourself in that way. And so I, I kind of think about how how if you were, say you're a person who works for a corporation that sells cars and the new product is the EV, the electric vehicle, you would want to market this product to the segment of the population most likely to purchase that product. So you do market research and, you know, at the top of my head, you'd probably want to find people who care about what kind of vehicle they have, people who are going to buy a new car, not a used car, and probably are going to spend $20,000, $30,000, maybe more than that on a new car. People who are environmentally conscious, people who have the capability to charge a vehicle off-site or on-site rather, and then people who would choose to drive over other modes of transportation. And so obviously all of these characteristics have geographical correlations. And they really, in my mind, point to upper middle class suburban consumers from this kind of market research perspective, which I'm sure these are the exercises they go through. Um, so the idea of electric vehicles being a solution to a problem on a broader scale, I think is is not very convincing to me. I don't feel like I'm part of this like segment of the population who um, would purchase this product. And so it may be part of kind of a larger answer, but I just am very skeptical that we're just all going to be able to drive electric vehicles and won't have to think about these problems anymore. Yeah, I I'm with you. I'm not the target market. And so this brochure looks a little absurd to me, right? Like this th this marketing package is, is not hitting me, but I I'm not going to buy their product anyway. It's funny because you, as, you, as you're talking, as you're bringing this up, I, I think about this friend of mine. And he is a, a beautiful man. He's a sweet guy. I, I really love him. He was part of an organization that was 
uh, fighting, and, and these, these are their words, they were trying to fight sprawl in Minnesota. And he was very dedicated to this, had spent you know many, many years of his life in this effort, uh, believed in it passionately. And uh, he drove a Prius and lived in an exurb and drove into the center of Minneapolis or, or St. Paul every day. He had very good reasons and justifications for this. And we would talk about it. And I would say, don't, don't you feel a little hypocritical here? Like you're living out in quote unquote sprawl in the middle of nowhere. And he's like, yeah, but I drive a energy economic vehicle and I'm, you know, pretty good with the land and I take care of things. And I just like, this does not make sense to me. I feel like if you are an environmentalist, which which I am imposing because I, I would like to say I am environmentalist, but I I will confess to and you know being someone who does not wake up every morning like thinking about environmental impact and what I can redo to reduce my environmental impact. But if you are one person who if you are a person who does, there are many many ways that you can reduce your environmental impact that is way more effective than buying an electric vehicle. To me, that would be like number 1000 in a list of things that you could do. And even though I don't wake up every morning and go, how do I reduce my environmental impact? I, I walk to work every day. I, you know, I, I bring my own like water from home and mug to drink out of. I kind of have because, and I'll quote Mike McGinn, the former mayor of, of Seattle, not because I'm an environmentalist, but because I'm kind of cheap. I, I do these things and they also kind of correlate to, I think, having a much lower environmental footprint. Living um, simply. Yeah. And and here's the thing. My daughters and I were talking this week about what it means to be rich, what it means to be wealthy. And I said, like, there's two ways to become wealthy. And one is to make a lot of money. And the other way is to adjust how you live. And, and, and I said, I feel incredibly rich. I feel like ridiculously wealthy um, because I have this like really, really full life, but it's also a pretty frugal, cheap life. If I'm an environmentalist today, uh, if this is like really, really important to me, or, you know, let's take it to the next step. If I'm, you know, worried about social justice, if I'm worried about overall climate change and, and impacts, the thing I'm leading with is let's make the frugal lifestyle. Let's make, uh, you know, in a sense, living with less be the kind of default sexy, you know, like this is a higher quality of life kind of thing, as opposed to trying to sell people like, you know, we can give you a new car with a blinged out dashboard and something that will ultimately drive itself. And it's going to look really sleek and it's going to represent to everyone around you that you are eco-friendly. I, I don't know. I mean, to me, that feels very, um, I'll say old school. Yeah, it does feel old school. And the idea that we are going to be able to completely adopt EVs kind of ignores the fact that not everybody has private parking spaces. I mean, I, I just think of my own neighborhood and myself. I, I park on the street and I have a car that I don't drive all the time. And I don't, I mean, I don't use that much, but I have it. It's there to get from point A to point B. I, I personally think the more environmentally conscious thing you can do is just to be close to where you're going um, rather than commuting long distances all the time. Uh, and working from home has really been uh, helpful. So I'm thankful that I have the ability to do that. But, but yeah, I mean, in terms of 
charging infrastructure. I rarely hear any conversations around how that works for people who don't have off-street parking. And from a planning perspective, that really contradicts a lot of the other conversations we have around building land uses around parking. And I think that as we're thinking through this, we ought to make sure that our policies around electric vehicles and using parking as a land use and promoting that are not contradicting what we're trying to accomplish here because living locally could have a way better impact than buying an electric vehicle. And and besides, I don't think that we should really be, be looking at environmental sustainability as something that you can just buy your way into. It, I mean, it's, like, yeah. <laughs> it, it's like, you know, giving a lot of money to the church, but you never practice the religion. Oh, no, come on. <laughs> uh, buy your way out of purgatory, you're saying? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm Catholic. I can appreciate the, uh, the, the, the parallel. It, yeah. It, to me... And I feel like this is one of the reasons why you find this in the American Conservative magazine, this conversation. My office is in an old junior high, which is now an art center. And one of the very sad things about the last year is that this building, which is usually, it's a bunch of classrooms that are now artist studios. And it's very uh, outward facing in terms of like, there's all this activity and life going on. And it's been shut up for a year. Everybody's locked in their studios. They don't come out. When they come out, it's, it's you know, everybody, we're, we're used to this now. Everybody's masked. Nobody sits and lingers and talks. You have a little bit of music in the hallway, but not that much. This week, for, for some reason, and I don't really know why, but there was a choir practicing in the auditorium, which is right across the hallway from my office. It's this nice audit, old auditorium. And this was gorgeous. I mean, it was beautiful. They were singing some some Christian song. I, I'm guessing for like a church service that's coming up or something. And it was it was powerful. It was beautiful. It was harmonious, and it it made me like tear up a little bit because you know we haven't had live music like this for a long time, and you've not been able to sit. I I kind of snuck in and sat in the back and listened to them, and uh, it was gorgeous. It was beautiful, and it made me think on my way home how much you know of this time that we have had has been different over the last year and this is a very long way of saying i think that you know the idea of spending half an hour in an automobile commute the idea of spent you know each way the idea of devoting so much of your time to driving around the idea of being isolated from people in your community and in your neighborhood while you're in your car the the idea of having these these kind of faceless interactions with other pieces of steel as you navigate, I have this lingering question of, will we be willing to go back to that? Will people who have not sat in an hours of congestion every day, both ways for the last year, be willing to submit to that again? And I don't think like the sheen of having an electric vehicle makes that part of your life any more tolerable. And I don't think it makes giving up all the things that you give up to participate in that any more redeeming because of the fact that, you know, you're getting your energy through an electric wire from a fossil fuel plant or even a windmill or a, uh, you know, solar panel, uh, then you're getting it by, you know, sticking gallons of gas in your engine. I really hope not. I mean, that that sounds like a huge bummer to be 
going, sitting in a car for 30 minutes, one way, each way per day. I'm very skeptical that people are going to want to do that again. And I just don't know that. Yeah. I feel like there's a huge percentage of population that now that they have tasted something different are just going to say like, no, like I I opt out of, like, I can't, I, I don't know. I, when I went to grad school, I drove from Elk River, Minnesota to Minneapolis. We split the difference, my wife and I, between where she worked and where I was going to school. And it required an hour, 15 minutes of commute into the University of Minnesota. It was horrible. And I like, I will never go back to that. Like, I, I, I don't know what you would have to pay me. To, I don't think there's a dollar amount that I could make that would make me submit to that again. I don't think people are going to want to be doing that. Some people may. Some people may just go right back into the rat race of driving an hour every single day. But now that a lot of people haven't been commuting, I think that that is going to become a new pattern. I mean, I'm still working from home and I know a lot of people who are and I know people who have been going into their office once or twice a week and working remotely otherwise. And even people who even people who are living in suburbs are living more locally anyway at this point it, it's almost like we should just kind of rethink things as as villages and because people are kind of living in their own communities at this point i think there's a lot of opportunities to rethink how we build in our communities too for that reason and all the time that we could be the time and the effort that we could be putting towards electric vehicles and the infrastructure. I mean, we could be just putting that towards just building places that don't create car dependency. Right. Strong towns. I mean, we've never been anti-car. I own a car. I drive places. I appreciate having a car. I think the idea though, that we would build cities and neighborhoods and, and human habitat around an automobile is just a very antiquated uh, way to think. I mean, I, I understand how we got here. Uh, we were chasing a certain level of growth and transactions and, and it got us into this place. But really, I, I, I hope that the lesson from the pandemic, the, the, the lesson from this is, is, yes, maybe we need electric vehicles and maybe this will be great and, and we can sit 20 years from now and you know, all of us will be driving electric vehicles, and they'll have far less emissions, and they'll get their energy from, uh, you know, uh, the the tears of polar bears or whatever it is that is sustainable. <laughs> that will be that will be gorgeous. That will be beautiful. Let's let's do that, and then you know, let's also drive eighty percent less than we do now, and let's actually have places that allow us to live like very fulfilled lives you know, without having to get in a car and, and waste hours and hours and hours of human value sitting in traffic and trying to get to distant places. Let, let, let's make an economy that works different than that. Yeah. I think that's very important. And the point that, that we don't hate cars is a very, very critical one because I personally don't hate cars. When I travel long distances, I'll rent a car and get like a BMW. I love nice cars, but, oh, yeah. my, but my car that I own is the least interesting thing about me because I have no, I, I see no reason to buy a nice car for myself. I can just rent one when I travel long distances. So it, to me, it's like a, it's a utility that sits out on the street and collects dirt 
And it's not necessarily something that you have to spend a lot of money on. You can just be close to where you're going. Right. It's funny because Mr. Money Mustache, Pete Adney, wrote an article a few years ago and he is, he is like famously doesn't drive. Cause he says like the, having a car is the greatest waste of money that you can have. And it's a I don't know if you're asset. Yeah. It's a huge depreciating asset. And his whole shtick is that he retired at age 32 and lives this really high quality of life. And when you dig into it, the reduction of driving is a huge part of what his whole thing is. I had him on the podcast once and I said, okay, in a typical year, and I was trying to use a number I thought was really low. I'm like, in a typical year, like less than 10,000 miles a year? And he's like, good, good gosh, like, yes. And I'm like, okay, less than 6,000. And I said, less than 5,000. And he's like, let me just cut this off. He said, I think I drove 600 miles last year. Wow. And Yeah, but you know what? I thought that was crazy at the time. And this was like seven, eight years ago. Living in the neighborhood I live in now, if I did not have to drive my kids a dance, and if I did not go to the airport to go fly to you know different places for strong towns, I think I would be less than a thousand miles a year. And there's just no reason to walk. Yeah, I have no idea how many miles I drove last year, but because I'm working from home, I I don't know. Maybe I am under that. <laughs> how how often do you feel you fill your car with gas? Um. Once a month, maybe? I don't know. I was going to say, to me, it's like every six weeks. Yeah. 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 Like never. (laughs) Right. Like never. Exactly. And, you know, I I think back to like when we used to live in our old house, which was out on the edge of town. Yeah. It was once a week. It was twice a week sometimes. Totally. Totally. Well, this is an interesting discussion. Sounds like EVs aren't going to save the world, but, but it's, you know, no problem if you do buy one. It's just not necessarily going to save everybody from climate catastrophe, right? If we were going to talk seriously about climate change and the things we can do, I feel like the the current conversation is one, two, three, four bullet points are about electric vehicle technology. And I actually (laughs) think one, two, three, four should be about walkable communities, walkable neighborhoods, higher quality of life, better cities. And and we get to electric vehicles at like, you know, item number 50 or something like that. Yeah, totally agreed. Totally agreed. Well, thank you, Chuck, for joining me today. That's all the time we have for today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show we can share anything we've been listening to, reading, watching, Etc. So, Chuck, what has been on your radar these days? I've got, I'm still going through that Great Courses lecture, The Story of Human Language. And I'm just, I find it utterly fascinating. And I blew Stella's mind the other day because we had been talking about, my Stella's my youngest one. We have been talking about uh, languages such as Mandarin, where the inflection of your voice means something different. And I was thinking about how you know, impossible that would be. Like, I I don't feel like I could learn that language. And then her and I were talking and she said the word, oh, and I recognize that we do that here. Because if you say, you know, if you, if, if you said something, I go, oh, it would mean different than if I said, oh, and it's yeah. the same word. And it's an inflection of a word. And so her and I were talking about this and she's like, we started to do this back and forth to each other. Like, oh, oh, oh. And, <laughs> and it was funny how, how the same word, oh, 
spoken in like five different ways means five different things. And so it, it gave me some confidence that, well, maybe I could uh, learn something like this. Yeah. So you're going to learn Mandarin? That'll be your next step. <laughs> I went into engineering so I didn't have to take a foreign language. And I do feel like it's one of my greatest failings as a human being is that <laughs> I, I speak one language and then are, I'm a hack at like five others. So, yeah. 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 Learning a language is tough, especially as an adult. I, I feel like that it's important for kids to learn how to learn speak a second language. I, I took several semesters of Spanish and – it just, it's gone mostly. Well, the the course does like emphasize the plasticity of your brain when you're young and how we're kind of wired to learn languages. And so people who are young, it's very easy for them to learn many different languages. Uh, and the older you get, the the less plasticity you have in that part of your brain. And so I, I may have passed the point where I could ever be a fluent speaker in another language. Yeah, I'm so jealous of people who can speak several languages. Yeah, I I feel like it just I don't know it. It's a different it level of genius. You, yeah, it like almost makes yeah. you smarter because yes. you're like interpreting different languages, and yeah, it's it's amazing to me. Well, last night I watched one of my favorite movies ever for like the 100th time, Pulp Fiction. I have, I'm sure you've seen that. <laughs> It is like one of my favorite movies. I've been listening to the soundtrack today. Just awesome. And it's I, I forget about different scenes in the movie every time I watch it or little details. And I just love that movie. And so I, I was happy to watch it once again last night. I'm a huge movie person. That one has been on my list for a long time. I've never watched it. What? Yeah. And I, I recognize that like something's wrong with me because I'd never have watched it. But I've, I've, there's a handful of movies like that that I know are like iconic that I haven't watched. Um, but that one came out at like a time when I just wasn't able to go to movies and I, I, I never saw it. And then I've never really circled back to it. It's, it's always been like circled on my list of ones to watch, but I, I've not. That's I kind so of waited for the right moment. Maybe you and I need to get together and watch Pulp Fiction. I would, I would enjoy that. You should watch it tonight. <laughs> Actually, okay. right now. Did I ever tell you about the podcast idea I wanted to do for Strong Towns? No. Um, I had this idea that we would uh, have a group that would go watch a movie. Because I, I, in normal times, I will go to a movie a week or two movies a week if I can. We would go to a movie and and basically then talk about not the movie, but talk about the urbanism in the movie and like the design and the layout and the sets and like how the city, how people, basically how the plot interacted with the city and that we would start a podcast based on like movie reviews of city design and how the design would impact the movies. And and I pitched that here a couple of times and we're doing the UpZone podcast. <laughs> so that shows you how how good my pitch was. I love that idea. I think okay. we've talked about in the past that horror movies are always set in suburbs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe let's not tell Rachel and let's not tell anybody else on the team. And let's just turn this into <laughs> the movie review podcast and no one will know. Yeah. And then, slash yeah. UFO podcast. Slash UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> People listening don't know that we we send each other like UFO things all the time now. So 
Yeah. 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 We'll be starting a podcast on the Strong Towns Network about <laughs> UFO sightings and uh-huh. uh, paranormal about activity and movies. Right. That It'll sounds be mixed great. into one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to all get fired. <laughs> I know. Rachel, don't fire us. <laughs> She's take away our podcast. Yeah, Thanks. don't take it away, please. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. I appreciate you taking the time with me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Bye-bye. Let me show you what I'm about to do.